0: All right, welcome to a new episode of Cali Claptrap Integral Conversations. Today's guest is Chris Conrad. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with your audience. Awesome. So, Chris is a court qualified cannabis expert witness, longtime cannabis activist, author, and his newest book is called Newbie's Guide to Cannabis and in the Industry, and founder of Cantheism. So Chris, I was hoping you could maybe start off by telling us a little bit about how you became so impassioned about this movement.
1: Well, um, actually, I, I started off my, um, my passion for the movement. I didn't even know there was movement at the time. Uh, in 1988, I, I've been a very uh, uh, active, politically uh, active individual for my entire life. And so when uh, in 1988, I got into an argument with a group of political activists that I, I had a lot of respect for, and so uh, at, this was, of course, the height of the drug war. Uh, uh, they had sent the National Guard into Northern California and Hawaii to rip up people's marijuana plants, and people were getting sentenced to prison for you know twenty plus years for, for growing a few plants and so forth. And so, uh, so I said to my friends, I said, "Well, we should do something about that." And everyone in the group I spoke to said, "Forget it. It's not going to work. What all that's going to happen is that you're going to ruin your reputation." Uh, Marijuana is still going to be illegal. So just forget it. Don't even bother. And so I felt a little bit offended by the fact that they didn't even think it was an issue worth trying to fight for. And so uh, so I I kind of made a bet with them. You know, uh, I, I said that if they, uh, that I would, uh, I bet I could come up with a strategy to legalize cannabis. And, and uh, you know, I thought it would take five years to do it. But I, I said, you know, I, I can come up with a strategy. And so um, what I, uh, I did was I came up with a four point plan. Uh, it's really. Although really, there's really three main points. The fourth point was kind of changing depending upon what campaign I was running, but it was uh, industrial hemp, medical marijuana, and adult use. Treat the meat as a separate issue. Never back away from any of them, and give the opposition no quarter. Meaning that I went after the religious right, I went after the uh, the ACLU, I went out with everybody in between those two things, you know. And so, uh, you know, but what I the thing that I was able to do was because my background was a political activist um when i got involved i couldn't i couldn't even find a this is pre-internet of course i couldn't even really find a marijuana legalization movement so i'd heard of normal and i contacted them and i didn't find i got very much support uh and so i decided well i have to do this on my own so i formed a group called business alliance for, for commerce in hemp and uh and and it grew from there within five years we had uh, got uh uh starting to look at legalizing hemp. Uh, there was a Hemp Industries Association form. At the time that I, this happened, by the way, there were only two hemp companies left in the United States. And when I contacted them, I fi- it took a long time to find them. I found them, I contacted them, I said, I want some of your products because I want to show people about hemp. And both of them said, do me a favor, buy it all because I'm done. Hemp is over. Uh, and this is wow. in 1988. So you yeah. can see where things were. Uh, and so so that's really, it, it offended me that people thought you could not change a law that I thought was so clearly needed to be changed. Uh, and so that's really what got my passion up about it. Well, that's just amazing. I mean, to think, and again, I don't
0: really know the, the story. Is this written, like, is this sort of documented somewhere where someone could learn a little bit more about sort of your involvement and how, how you sort of went about doing this?
1: Yeah, uh, actually, uh, there's a, a, my news website is called theleafonline.com. And if you go to that website and you look up uh, Power Couple of Pot, uh, that's what my wife and I were known have been known as over the years uh, as a power couple of pot. Uh, and so th- there's a it's a video that was done by Cannabis News Network. Uh, they did a series of five uh, different parts of our campaigns between the, the 1988 when we started in nine and 2016 when we legalized cannabis in California. So that's the time period they covered. OK, and I and know I'll tell you 19... one of the things they often say is I spent the first uh, you know, it took me like uh, 28 years to do it. And I often say that it took me the first uh, eight uh, 18 years convincing America to legalize pot in the last 10 years to, to convincing the hippies it's okay to legalize pot because uh, you know once we started getting closer to legalization, it's one of them was distant. It was just like everybody was talking about uh, well I shouldn't say everybody most people thought it was impossible when marijuana is bad, etc. but uh, for the people in the movement, was very unified because we just wanted to stop people going to prison. The more we started implementing laws, the more people started saying, "Well, I, you know, there's this and there's that that I don't like," and so it became very um, uh, a little tricky there. But one of the things I'm going to point out though, is, I said I, I wanted to attack from all levels, so we 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 had to save the industrial hemp industry. And create a movement to support it and create an industry business industry to go along with it uh, then the other thing was with medical marijuana at the time it looked to me like medical marijuana is virtually legal the reason for that was because a federal judge judge francis young ruled in 1988 just before i got started he ruled that the federal government had to take marijuana out of schedule one because Uh it was one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man, you know. So I thought, well, you know, not much work to do on that one. Uh, Mainly what we did at that point was we got uh, people to, we got the federal paperwork to sign up for the federal program, and we started putting it all over the country, getting people to sign up and, and educating people, constantly educating, of course. Uh, and then the third one was with uh, personal adult use. And so, um, seemed to me, like the personal adult use was the harder of the three issues to take on. And so yes. I felt there were a couple of directions we could go. One was talking about the, um, what we call marijuana prisoners, prisoners of conscience or prisoners of consciousness, uh, and, you know, and, and the importance of getting people out of prison for this plant. Uh, but the other thing that we talked about was the, um, the religious use and the cultural value of cannabis. Uh, remember, we were up against everybody saying cannabis is bad. So we say, well, no, not only is it good, but in fact, you know, it's a good thing for your spirit. It's for your soul. It's a moral thing to have because the, op- mm-hmm. the opposition was you can tell a moralistic story about marijuana whatever, you know, for whatever reason they put it up for the day, you know. Uh, and so we wanted to, like I said, we gave them no quarter. We would not agree with any of their their positions negative on marijuana. And so uh, so at that point, um, I had already written couple books with histories of marijuana and things like that. There's a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes, uh, Jack uh-huh. Harris, the author. I designed and edited it. We actually collaborated together and put it together. He used to call it our book. But once I started writing my own books, he stopped calling it our book and it became his book. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Awesome. <laughs> funny how that happens. But in any case, yeah. uh, you know, but it's been worked on and modified quite a bit since I originally uh, turned it into the book that it kind of it became. Uh, but like I said, so I'd done this research. And, and I remember from college reading Herodotus about the Scythians, S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S, who uh, used cannabis in, in purification rituals and ceremonies. And so uh, so I thought, well, you know, this gives me a good basis. And of course, I was familiar with the, the Hindu Saihu and the Rastafarians. And so, uh, so what I decided to do was to go ahead and identify um, what I felt were the elements of a common system of belief that went through all these different cannabis-based religions. Uh, and then also to connect it to what I saw my, my acquaintances use cannabis, uh, how they were using it as well. And so uh, to come up with, some, you might call it a little bit of a mashup between the two uh, in order to create something that people would be able to use as a defense in court, also use it as a way of taking uh, more spiritual lives and, and having a more serious rather than strictly, well, I don't like really the word recreational marijuana. It's adult use or, you know, personal use as far as I'm concerned. You can you use it for recreation, but that's just one of many things. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we, uh, so we decided to, to press for that kind of a, a change. And by that point, I had become an expert witness in the courts as well. And so, uh, no sooner did we found this and post it on the internet, because by now the internet was existing, then uh, the, I went into court and law enforcement. The prosecutor comes up and says, "Well, didn't you invent this religion called Cantheism?" And blah, blah, blah you know, and and uh, and so the ju- the, the attorney's office said, "Please stop writing about Cantheism." And so I kind of went underground with it. I kept uh, working with different church groups, but we didn't really promote Cantheism itself uh, so much until uh, after 2016, when cannabis got legalized in California, my casework went from uh, you know hundreds of cases uh, a year to a couple. Yeah, And so the whole idea of getting trapped in court and having to deal with this whole uh, spiritual argument uh, in an irrelevant and potentially biasing uh, situation was something that we could ditch at last. And so that's what we did. And uh, so starting in 2017, we got together a group of people and started uh, experimenting. Uh, well, seeing how the things that I had developed played out and then taking that and using it to uh, bring in other aspects and and expand upon it, where we started having ceremonies and building from there.
0: Awesome. And we'll eventually get that, get there. And I hope to, uh, we're going to probably, if you're okay with it, bounce around a little bit because I find your uh, history so fascinating. So you, you already sounded very politically activated. Do you recall, when you, you're a your first initial sort of where you felt invested into being a political activist?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, I, I did. Uh, I, I have a very clear uh, recollection of that. Uh, you know, the first thing is that my, my family, uh, we were raised Catholic. And so I, when John F. Kennedy was running for president in 1960, we, we put up signs around our neighborhood. And then our neighbors were all Protestant, they came in ripping them all down. Wow. And so that was the first thing I just, I saw this happen and I thought, well, you know, I don't care. I put up more signs, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to let them ripping down the signs stop me. But the thing that really, that really got me involved was, uh, it's a story that's actually pretty famous is that there were uh, four civil rights workers who were killed uh, in, and buried in a dam in, I think it was 1964 roughly. And so uh, when I heard that story, they found the bodies and I, I just, was so upset, I decided I really have to do something about it. So we, uh, a group of my, my mainly one friend and I formed a group called the Anti-Ku Klux Klan. And mm. so we started out doing uh, civil rights work. Uh, and believe, and I was in Maryland, you know, and so, uh, you know, you can't say the N-word or whatever anymore, but people would call us N-lovers, you know, mm-hmm. because we were not racist and they were. And so therefore we were, you know, they would attack us for that. But to me, I felt there was never anything wrong with saying that I love black people. It's like, so what? Yeah, you know, I love all people, <laughs> so, all right. you know, so they're trying to offend me. And it's like, so where's the offensive part again, except for using the N word was the only offensive part.
0: Yeah. And um, eventually you, you moved out to California because was that early on or,
1: or was that sort of later on in your life? No, that was. Uh, I thought we had accomplished really a lot. I was with the uh, civil rights movement. We got the you know, and the Voting Rights Act was passed, and things were moving along pretty well there. Uh, I worked on the peace movement, and we were getting the Vietnam War was getting wound down. We had gotten draft ended uh richard nixon was uh being impeached (laughs) so i thought you know i'm ready to do other stuff in life so i decided to move out to california and make my mark as an artist which of course uh, i i didn't manage to make my mark as an artist that much in fact i have a lot of paintings and stuff that i'm still trying to figure out what do you do with a lifetime collection of paintings when you never really made a career out of it yeah Uh, but i I came out to california mainly because i um first off when i was everyone always back in maryland always said you should be in california uh, but then the thing is that I, I met, a um, I did a hitchhiking trip, one of many hitchhiking trips. And so I, I caught a ride with the guy who was coming to California. And then, uh, we, so we were riding all the way from Canada to California, uh, Ontario. And, uh, when we got to, I think it was North Dakota or whatever I got, a, I, I called my family and said, what's up? And they said, your sister's getting married. You have to come home for the wedding. So, uh, that interrupted that trip trip and so i said to my friend who was going to california i said well let's just meet in california and so then i hitchhiked out to california after the wedding and uh in the meantime i had met a girl and uh, you know we moved out together and she's not in my life anymore talk. but you know that's kind of how that ended up that's yeah a, of, a little commune kind of going right off the bat
0: yeah i always think it's fascinating to hear people's stories especially of that generation just to uh recollect
1: and 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 here i find them fascinating so sort of to move on yeah you know the whole hitchhiking a, thing is something it would be interesting to go through someday i mean no one really talks about that much but i i do remember that uh later on that someone was telling me about uh, a young person who said they read the book on the road uh mm-hmm. and 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 they said you know that i said well because that was an influence to a book on in my life i mean I, I hitchhiked around the country before i read the book but then i read right. the book i said wow you know, I went through that too. And so uh so I talked to this person said, Well, what do you think of the book? And he says, Yeah, you know, yeah, at first I thought it was interesting, but then I realized it couldn't possibly be true. And I said, What do you mean it couldn't possibly be true? And he says, Well, there's this scene where they're driving through the mountains and they're on the flat bed of a truck and they've got a tarp over themselves and he said, You can't do that, you have to have a seat belt, you have to be in the back seat of a car. They'll never let you do that. And I'm like, Well boy, that's a difference in the years, right? cause it's our time, you know, I hitch like in the back of pickup trucks all the time. We would be in bounce pickup Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. So what, one of the so you talked about 19, 1988 sort of starting this, and one of the big sort of argument points. And I'm interested to see you know now that a lot of states have legalized marijuana. You know, there's a difference between decriminalization and legalization. I was hoping you could just sort of talk about the difference and what you advocate
1: for. Yeah, decriminalization is something that a lot of people felt quite comfortable with. And decriminalization, what that really means is it still is criminal, but you don't go to prison for it. So in Europe, they call it depenalization, because penalization is the penal colony. So in Europe, they call it depenalization. In the US, they call it decriminalization. I don't know why, because it still remains in the criminal codes. And so the, the basic thing is that instead of going to jail, they give you a uh, they give you a ticket for a, and yeah. usually it's about 100 bucks. But under the criminalization, they only allow you to possess it or to use it. They don't allow you to grow it. They don't allow you to sell it. And okay. so that's where legalization comes in, in order to get to the next level where you can actually go in your backyard and plant some plants, or where you can walk around within your pocket and say to the cop, yeah, I got this in my pocket, you know, go and leave me alone. Uh, that takes legalization. And the other thing for me is that, um, you know, a lot of people, the thing they don't that a lot of people get upset about with legalization is that it brings in commercialization because once it's legalized, you can regulate it and create businesses and so forth. And so I know a lot of people who say, well, uh, you know, money shouldn't be in marijuana or whatever. But, you know, before we got legalized, it was the big drug cart, international drug gangs that were making all the money. It's not that nobody was making money, It's that yeah. instead of a business here making money, it was some international criminal operation that was making the money. And so, uh, you know, but on the other hand, the other thing about the illegal market was that anybody could get into that market very easily. All you had to do is have some marijuana and find a friend who wanted to buy it you could sell it sure you might end up in prison for five years 10 years for doing that but you know but it was easy to get into the market now it's hard to get in the market but once you're in there you're not going to go to jail so i mean right. and of course we, this is forgetting the fact that there's already 20 states that are, or more that don't have any legal uh access you know but, uh, but once I'm talking about once it is legalized, that's a big difference is that you can have commerce. You don't have any, uh, jail. And, uh, like here in California, we have, it's kind of like a partial thing because there's still some criminal penalties, like, you know, but they're not, we've changed all the felonies to misdemeanors. Uh, mm-hmm. and we made it so there's legal things you can do. You can legally grow six plants. You can legally have eight grams of. of Concentrate. You can legally have an ounce of marijuana. You can have as much marijuana at home as you grow and you can give it away to your friends. And so these are all totally legal for anybody to do. And so one of the funny things is that once this happened in California that we legalized it, there are a lot of people. We used to have a system which uh, was medical marijuana based. They could arrest anybody. You could fight it in court. Uh, but, you know, it was much less regulated. And so there's some mm-hmm. people who said they preferred that. But uh, for me, no. For me, I, I like the idea that I don't have to worry about having to fight this in court. You know, right. of course, as an expert witness, it kind of wiped me out because, uh, you know, I, my work was defending people in court. And now yeah. people are getting arrested. So I'm, I'm happy with that.
0: Awesome. Yeah, well, one of the re- original reasons I wanted to invite you on was to talk about cantheism. And and eventually we'll get to that bit. I I find this other uh, piece of background
1: so interesting.
0: So originally there was two business hemp industries in 1988. Do you know how many there are now?
1: Oh, no, but it's in the thousands, you know, really. uh, In fact, uh, what happened was that in the first uh, two years, I, uh, well, let me say three, give it three and a half years. Uh, What I did, see, this is the other thing is that I came up from the activist network of not marijuana. So I was in communication with the civil rights movement, I was the peace movement, the uh, anti-nuclear movement, the environmental movement, all these different movements. And so I was sending my information. I was writing information designed to get people with those particular interests involved with my project. And I would send it out and I'd say if they, I had the once removed experience was I would send it to somebody who I knew was a really strong activist. I really respected and had really worked with and really thought they could make a difference. I was sent to them and they were like, oh, (laughs) this will never work. But I have this friend who'd be really interested. And then so the next thing I get a contact from this friend, who's usually pretty politically savvy as well, by the way, and so we created this network of people that weren't the people I originally knew, but the people that they knew who were interested. And then, of course, I found out there was a whole actually there was much bigger marijuana movement than I had ever known. uh, And that was like normal, but mainly it was the local normal chapters and the college normal groups. Normal stands for National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. It was formed in 1972. It was the oldest legalization movement uh, organization in the world right now. And so, uh, like I said, so I was getting these people who were contacting me to get involved and it turned out a lot of them were already involved with normal in in, in indirect ways that I didn't know about. So Mm. I, I kind of like had these two things, the general activists who were getting involved, connecting with marijuana activists who basically were not very effective. Yeah, you know, and really the thing with upset that the big difference I made in addition to bringing these two groups together is I came up with a strategy of how to advance and a whole series of tactics to advance each of those strategies. And so, you know, I think up to that point, I said that when I got involved, there was a lawsuit, like I said, the, the medical marijuana lawsuit with Francis Young. The other thing that was going on, people doing smokings in front of courthouses. And that was the vast majority of what was going on. I just said to him, you know, you're not going to legalize pot by wearing tie-dyes and smoking pot in front of a courthouse. That's not the way to do it. What we need to do is we need to get the farmers on board, get the environmentalists on board, get businesses on board, work with the politicians, change the way the society thinks about marijuana, talks about marijuana, get it into their hands, get it so they see that hemp is not the same as marijuana. Like this is a hemp shirt I'm wearing right now with marijuana flowers on it, so it combines the two. Uh-huh. you know and I had this whole series of things that we did and i developed literature each group of the country uh each part of the country i would find what they were interested in and like you know it was like uh think global but act local we find a local activist i would say well here's what we've got going and it's, then i say well what's going on in your community he says well right now we've got a problem with you know whatever you know that uh and, you know, and, uh, I, right now I, I don't have an example in mind, so I, I just yeah. rather than hanging up on it. I just say that. So they would say that. Uh, well, let's say that we have like the problem in our neighborhood is that the D.A.R.E. program is indoctr- brainwashing our kids and the kids are turning in their parents. So then mm-hmm. I put together this information called uh, D.A.R.E. is bad for schools and children. And, and so, <laughs> then, uh, so then so then Dare is out to saying drugs are bad. We were out to say D.A.R.E. is bad you know and so so we met them head-on and by the same time we'd be giving a mayor marijuana is good you know there <laughs> <So laughs> the been marijuana good awesome you create these crises and so like that was just one example and and dare is quite interesting because they were exploding they were all over the country very propagandistic in the schools etc etc yeah. and uh, we actually were instrumental in getting rid of them uh, no, they were uh, in oakland california which is close to where i live and so we uh you know we um that we heard that there was a hearing uh, at the city council where they were deciding whether or not to give them more money. They wanted a hundred thousand dollars. We said, "Well, you know." I'm not going to give them a hundred thousand dollars on my tax money. So, right. uh, so we went to the hearing, and uh, it was the the officer who was doing it. He's saying, "Oh, Dare is so great. Dare is so fantastic. Just a, but we just need more money, you know. We can do all this great stuff, and you know, we can't keep it going without a hundred thousand dollars from the city. And the city's going, "Yeah, we don't really have that much. It's really, a, you know, it's a tight budget, and so forth." So then we had a whole group of people, one from another from the community. Dare is bad because brainwashing children. Dare is bad because the information is false. Dare is bad because statistically, children who go through that program are more likely to abuse drugs than people who. Who don't dare is bad because it sucks money out of other educational processes, dare is bad because it misdirects law enforcement. And so, by the time we were done there, the city council people said, Well, you know, what we get out of this is dare can't keep going without a hundred thousand dollars. And we don't really have that money, and nobody wants it anyway. So let's get rid of DARE. And so they threw out DARE. And then uh, a week later, Houston threw out DARE. And then a month after that, Salt Lake City got rid of DARE. And I wasn't involved with either of those, by the way. We yeah. were just sending them information, but I wasn't running those campaigns. And so, uh, you know, just within a, within a month, we had three powerful blows against DARE, and they never recovered.
0: That's crazy. So looking back, I mean, standing now in 2021 and, and seeing that the where the where the path that has been created since that time, looking back and reflecting on that, what, what are your
1: thoughts? Well, I often compare it to uh, someone who makes a pineapple cake and then on their way, uh, taking it from the oven, it falls over. And so they end up with pineapple upside down cake. You say, well, it, <laughs> it started, it's, it's kind of what I thought it's a cake and it's got pineapple, but it's not exactly what I was expecting. And so uh, really the big thing that, that the problem that we encountered was that we couldn't do it fast enough you know i thought it was gonna take five years and so forth but because it took so many years it's like the packaging industry got in there then all of a sudden you know because we used to buy a little ziploc bag oh, well you know marijuana and smoke it and then then you have a ziploc bag that you put something else in later you know and it was almost zero waste you had a roach it was like burn it down to nothing throw it on the ground nothing you know then once we got into the business once the regulatory phases started coming into it, it became, Oh no, it has to be childproof packaging and everything has to be in plastic. And it has to be in these opaque bags. And, and so now we're doing all this, you know, and, and we were granted to this for environmental purposes. So the notion that suddenly we're generating tons of garbage, plastic garbage, uh, that's offensive to me. The fact that we have to like, you know, like I was up in Canada once and they were having discussion about marijuana facilities and they, and, and they had rules that said you have four inches of concrete, on your floor to make sure no one can cut tunnel from underneath. so then they're saying, no, we have to add an inch of steel on top of the four inches of concrete. I'm going like, you know how much it's gonna cost these guys to do that? You know? Yeah. I mean it's just ridiculous. And and, and so, you know, uh, all these other industries and financial interests got involved in it. Um, And so uh, I think that's really where the problem is. So it's turned out to be much more cumbersome. All these taxes, you know, we had sold the idea that instead of paying taxes to uh, arrest people for marijuana, we can make taxes by uh, selling it and regulating it. Well, that became, we can solve the world's problems, make the marijuana smokers pay for everything, you know. Uh, There's some social injustice, so we'll add an extra tax to marijuana. It's like no, that was not the intention. The intention was, you know, that we should be paying a reasonable amount of tax, not 50 percent tax. Yeah. You know, and and so these kind of things where special interests got heavily involved and they they thwarted the the smooth, you know, you can buy a little bag of weed and, and put it in a and it's a paper bag and you recycle compost the paper bag when you're done know, and all is clear. You know, that's what I think it should be, uh, but that's not what we have.
0: Yeah, so it maybe didn't get exactly according to plan, but aren't you also pretty amazed on how, how far we've come?
1: Yeah, actually, it, it's, uh, it was, well, one of the things that often hits me, though, is that I'll go to, uh, say, the National Cannabis Industries Association has these events. I don't know if you've ever been to one, Mm-mm. but they're, uh, they, they can be profound. They might have, like, you know, couple uh, thousand businesses, you know, with exhibits there at, at this one event. And so whenever I'm there, people almost universally say, well, who would imagine it would ever be like this? And I said, you know, I started the Business Alliance for Commerce in Hemp because I thought it, it had to become this. It had to be, you know, the financial interests had to be interested in it in order to make it move forward. Um, and so, uh, so it, it is to do with the scale. But the other thing I think is that uh, the, the thing that's a little... The negative on this whole thing from that point of perspective to me is that you know uh, at some point around 20 well pretty close to 2016 it, it seemed like that there became a whole group of people who said well I hate marijuana I've hated marijuana but I'll make money selling it and so you've got a lot of people who got involved who they didn't have the same kind of values anymore sure. uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't feel like it's up to me to tell people what their values should be. So it's not like that, but it, 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 you felt the difference, you know, like when we were starting this, it was all everyone's tie dyes and ponytails. And now you go to these conferences, there's not a single one there. You have something like uh, Boehner, Boehner, the former, uh, speaker of the house, Boehner, uniformly oh, yeah. voted to send people to prison send people to prison, send people to prison, take away their property, forfeiture, take away their kids, you know, ruin their lives. If they smoke marijuana, then, all of a sudden he starts the marijuana business he's like, oh, this is a great thing. He has done nothing to help us and whatever. But he wants to be there for the profit, you know. That's great. Likewise, a bunch of these artists and so forth, you know. It's like over the years, for for 30 years, we were trying to get more politi- more artists involved. We had like Woody Harrelson. Even the Grateful Dead wouldn't come out and, and support us really, you know. Uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, Willie Nelson. I, I don't know. You could probably name a couple of others. But we had very little of, of celebrities being out there. Then you legalize it. Then they all want to stick their name on it. A package right. and sell it, make money off of it, you know? And so to me, there's kind of like this this willingness of people to take advantage of uh, all this. And they've forgotten the fact that what we had to go through to get here. They forgot the fact that there's people like Luke Scarmazzo in prison right now, uh, who got sentenced to 27 years in prison for providing medical marijuana to sick and dying people. He's still in prison while Boehner is making money selling marijuana with an international conglomerate. You know what I mean? that, that I have a problem with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was not familiar with that. And I, and I, it was something I still wanted to touch on. There was two things that you had brought up. The first one is, um, what, what movement can you tell us about? Cause I'm not familiar with it that are trying to get people out of jail that have been sentenced in the past, uh, for marijuana charges is, is there currently like uh, organizations say that again?
1: Organizations you mean?
0: Yeah. Is there is there a, a center sort of organization that are looking at sort of, you know, re- I, you know, occasionally you see in the news that these charges are reversed. But, right. you know, to know that people are still in prison because of a marijuana charge. Is, is there any sort of organization that's sort of leading that charge to get these re- revoked or rescinded?
1: Yes. there's a group called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, FAMM.org. And they are uh, they're working specifically on the mandatory minimum sentence Issue there. Uh, then there is a group called Can Do Clemency, uh, uh, and I think that's a Can Do I, I, I don't have the yeah. website in front of me. Uh, and then there is Let Freedom Grow, and both of these are trying to work to get people out of prison. Specifically, mm-hmm. uh, they target individual cases and work from there. And then there's a Congressional Cannabis Caucus, and uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to convince, and, and this is. Barbara Lee, uh, Blumenauer, uh, you know, Congress members. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Biden to cr- create a universal clemency for marijuana, nonviolent marijuana offenders who imprison uh, at, at the federal level. And so, uh, you know, those are the, the four that I would steer people to right away. My own organization was called Human Rights and the Drug War. It's kind of a relic at this point, uh, but the website is hr95.org. And that reminded me, I really need to, because, you know, we've been doing this for so long that, you know, we did some of the first websites out there and they still look like it, you know, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. So our listeners can, if they're interested in that movement.
0: yeah But also remember, Normal does
1: that kind of stuff to Marijuana Policy Project, MPP.org. But those groups I mentioned before, they focus on the prisoners.
0: Yeah, and the other thing you brought up, and I was unfamiliar with it. My, my understanding was that marijuana was still a Schedule One drug, and and therefore, like tests couldn't be done on it. Has something changed that
1: you're aware of on, on that? Uh, actually, no, it's still a Schedule One drug, uh, and the the thing that's changed is that the DEA used to uniformly block all studies. And then the study started being done in other countries like uh, Brazil and Israel, most importantly Israel and Europe. And so, uh, at that at some point, the uh, through a series of a whole, whole bunch of different fights and battles, we've gotten the DEA to occasionally approve a study. But uh, no, the, the problem that you're pointing to still exists. The DEA is a complete barrier not only to legal changes but to even to scientific research. And uh, yeah. you know the thing is that they there's an organization called the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, That organization was formed under President Gerald Ford. The reason for that was because there was a big movement to legalize marijuana in the 1970s and the uh, president's commission had come out in favor of it. And they said they wanted some studies done to, to test whether marijuana was, you know, how dangerous it was or whatever. And so they created this organization and its mandate is to find negative effects of marijuana and illegal drugs, not to do scientific research, but to do research to found negative effects. And so as a result of this, this organization blocks, if you have a, like for a good example is that there was a, we knew that marijuana helped AIDS patients. We knew it. I mean, they were were living longer. They were having better reactions to chemotherapy. You know, they were living better lives. They were more functional. We knew it, we could see it. And so we wanted to get some studies done. And so this doctor in San Francisco State University, uh, Dr. Donald Abrams, he put to the fourth of the federal government, well, let's do some research on marijuana and AIDS patients to see if it helps them. He got rejected. He puts it in again, more protocols. Marijuana and AIDS patients, does it help them? The guy at NIDA says, You don't understand our name, we you know we're trying to find, you know, what's wrong with these drugs. So he rewrote the study and he said, Let's do a study to find out whether marijuana messes up AIDS patients. <laughs> and then that study got approved and turned out, lo and behold, it helped them, you know. That's- the only way you get the study approved. And there's another really important one, too, that everybody should know about. This is Dr. Donald Tashkin in in the 1970s, Dr. Donald Tashkin looked at the marijuana smoke compared to tobacco smoke. And he he is a, uh, I don't know what you call a breath doctor, but you know, he specializes in in, uh, breathing issues and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So in any case, he put in, he came up with a theory that marijuana is 15 times more carcinogenic than is tobacco. And so he put in a, a, uh, a request to the federal government to do a study. A longitudinal study, meaning it's going to cover a, a, quite a long time and compare what happens to people over a duration of time to find out, because he said, I think it's 15 times more toxic than, than uh, tobacco. And that we're going to have a huge number of lung cancers in the marijuana smoking community. So the federal government's like all over that. Wow. Yeah. You know, we're going to fund that. So they funded, they funded it, they funded, you know, 15 years. Are you ready for the results? No, no, not yet. 20 years in there. You ready for the results? Not 30 years into it. They say, we wanted some results. He says, well, here's what the results are. Marijuana does not cause lung cancer. Marijuana does not cause emphysema. Marijuana is only remotely connected to bronchitis. Marijuana smokers' lungs have higher elasticity than people who don't smoke marijuana. We think that there's something in marijuana smoke that stops people from getting cancer. So what the federal government did they ended the study. They put a two-year ban on any information about the study being discussed in the U.S. media. They blocked it. Wow. And so what happened was that Dr. Tashkin, after 30 years of spending our tax money to prove this very thoroughly, <laughs> that marijuana does not cause lung cancer, in order to talk about it, he had to go to Europe to do a presentation in order to talk about the study that U.S. taxpayers paid for because the federal government did not like the results of the study. So That's it gives crazy. you an idea of what we're yeah. we've been up against trying to change these laws. And another, yes. let me just throw out one other thing. Uh, marijuana is not physically addictive. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it has no physical connection or that you can't become to where you like it a lot and it become where you're smoking more than you feel like you should or something like that. But what it means is it does not cause the kind of serious withdrawal that alcohol, barbiturates, uh, amphetamines and things like that cause. You don't have the same physical results. You might have a little hard time sleeping uh, and things like that. But we know marijuana is not physically addictive in the same state that opiates are and, and things like that. So what the federal government did is they changed the definition of addictive. And among the other things they said, if use any illegal substance, if you use any illegal substance, then that shows addiction. And so, as long as they could keep marijuana illegal, they could with this new definition, they can say it's addictive. So I went to this uh, uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse um, conference, and one of the guys said, you know, there's a big argument for a long time about you know whether marijuana is addictive or not, but we settled that because we changed the, addi- the definition of addiction to include marijuana, so it is addictive. And it's like that's that's such garbage. You know, they changed the way they use a word in order to make it fit what they want, instead of using the word the way it's supposed to be used. So they changed right. the definition of addiction in order to make marijuana addictive. They didn't, but when they yeah. found out it, it wasn't. So I think these are the examples that show you what we've been dealing with with the federal government.
0: Yeah. And eventually we'll get to cantheism, I promise. Um, the next question I had was because it's so prominent in the news is the research that's being done like on psychedelics. And sort of, um, you know, like I'm thinking of the book, uh, Michael Pollan just wrote of how I think how to change your mind. Uh, and so I was wondering. Do yeah,
1: you, I, actually, you, I'm reading that. I'm not finished yet, but it's, it's fascinating.
0: Oh, yeah. Excellent. I was just wondering if you can. Is there any sort of similarities like is there uh, that you're finding with uh, on, on that front with marijuana? Are, are Is there sort of that front happening or is it still like in the doghouse and and while uh, the psychedelic movement seems to be, you know, coming out with all this research, showing the benefits of it, you know, absent in that book is marijuana. So I was wondering, is there something that you're aware of where there,
1: there's also maybe a movement happening to, to bring it out of the doghouse, so to speak? <laughs> well, there's definitely a movement trying to bring it out of the doghouse. There's a number of clinical and non-clinical uh, medical association groups that are specifically specifically looking at cannabis and cannabinoids. Uh, and so uh that, the i don't i, I don't remember if he talked about it in the book but i do um I, if you read the book one of the people who is very important there is a guy named Rick Doblin with the Multidisciplinary mm-hmm. Association on Psychedelic Studies he is personally, I'd give him the most credit uh, for getting these psychedelic uh, studies done. Uh, just because he's the one I know the best, you know, <laughs> but yeah. I see the most often. So, so, but, but I, I totally give him a ton of credit on this. And so we've had this conversation and he said, well, the thing is, is that it's easier to do studies on other drugs than on marijuana because the federal government has created a monopoly on the supply of marijuana at the University of Mississippi. And so, whereas if I, do, if he gets say. Per, per, approval to do a study on um, uh, ecstasy, MDMA, then he can go ahead and get a supply of MDMA very easily. The government just, you know, accepts this and so forth. But when it comes to marijuana studies, it took them two years for the federal government to provide one ounce of marijuana for that study on AIDS that I mentioned about. One ounce of marijuana for a study? on a whole disease you know and uh and so this is really where the problem is is the federal government has to create a whole nother layer two whole layers you can go through the food and drug administration to get approval for a psychedelic study but if you want to go through uh do a marijuana study you have to go through the fda then you have to go through nida then you have to go through the dea then you have to go through their monopoly to get your supply and other problem with that is that the quality of the marijuana provided by the federal government is so much lower that the quality that people get on the street or from a, a marijuana store, that they felt like the results, you know, were just they couldn't even be sure how good they were because, yeah. you know, if you're getting a three percent THC marijuana uh, and you're saying, well, I'm not seeing much of a result, but meanwhile people are actually smoking 10, 15 percent THC marijuana. Well, they've got you know three to five times better chance of getting an effect than the one who's using the federal marijuana and so you know so it it biases the studies in addition to blocking studies and making obstacles to the studies then they create bias in the studies that are allowed to go forward and it's he said it's easier to do a study on any other drug than marijuana marijuana is the single hardest drug to do a study on
0: and and then how university of mississippi happened to be the only Uh, college I was given that permission is probably another good story, but we'll have to say that maybe for a different time. All right. So actually, you know what? uh, I was really interested in um, looking up. uh, So this podcast is sort of centered around, you know, uh spirituality uh amongst other things but and so i was you know curious about you know i'm familiar with rastafarianism but i looked up you know other religions related to cannabis and, and this is how i kind of found you and so you have uh, i was sort of interested if you talk a little bit about kantheism and i know you did earlier but what when you actually started it and what your mission is
1: well and, and i start i uh, <coughs> i started talking about kantheism <coughs> excuse me um I started talking about cantheism as a concept in uh the early 90s uh because like i said i felt like of all the personal uses that religious use is the one thing that the constitution says you totally have a right to do is the freedom of religion and so i said they can argue about the other stuff but i don't just don't see how they can do that so i looked at it from that per, uh, point of view uh and so In 1995, my wife and I formed an organization with a woman named Virginia. My wife is Mickey Norris, by the way. Uh, We formed an organization with another woman named Virginia Reznor called Human Rights 95 or Human Rights in the Drug War. And so we um, had a, uh, we wanted to bring attention to the human consequences of the drug war. And so it, it's very powerful. I mean, it's really worth a whole discussion in itself of what we did. But uh, what we did is we took pictures of marijuana prisoners. We created this environment. So when you walked into it, it was like you were walking to prison with all these people. They looked like really nice people, you know? Uh, and you heard about how they ended up in prison and what it did to their families and stuff. And so it's was, it was a very impactful uh, thing. But one of the families that was in there, one of the those actually got us going was a Rastafarian family uh, in Montana. And uh, the, the parents, the father got, convicted of four tons of marijuana. Uh, the wife got convicted of four ounces of marijuana. But because the, she her husband was involved with the four tons, that they ended up giving her a 10-year prison sentence. Uh, and so her children were, were totally messed up, too. And so we thought, well, this is the case where we might be able to focus on people's attention on the religious use of marijuana. Uh, it was not the best case. Uh, the reason, because there's four tons of marijuana, they are selling it. Yeah. And so this is the same problem we keep running into, the Rastafari, not, excuse me, the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church in the 1980s in Florida, they had a religious use case, but what was involved was a shipload of, shipload of hashish that they were importing into the country to sell. And so the courts are very clear that selling it is considered commercial, it's not considered spiritual or religious. And so mm-hmm. you lose your religious de- rights uh, defense if that happens and so uh so what we were looking for was a kind of a pure case and so what i did was i i i looked at what the laws required uh and you know there's a, a some of the things you're not discriminated against people is for their creed and for their religion and so uh being raised as a catholic i thought well you know the i you know i was familiar with the catholic creed you know so i thought well i i could certainly come up with something like that uh, and then that would give people the race, color, national, creed and national origin argument of their civil rights. Um, and so, uh, what I did basically was I, I little modeled after the, the Catholic, uh, creed, <laughs> but then I went through and I just looked at all these different religions and I was looking for the essential commonness characteristics and things that, one of the things I discovered about the marijuana smokers and the marijuana religions is that they really have a lot of diverse opinions and ideas. And so it's not easy to just, and the the other thing I found is you can't just say to them, follow me, you know, do what I tell you to, because you know, they, they don't, Yeah, (laughs) that's why I I tell you, organizing the marijuana movement is like herding cats. And and that's a whole other thing talking about how (laughs) we managed to get things. To happen in the midst of all this craziness. Uh, yeah. But in any case, you know, we decided that we wanted to, uh, I decided that I wanted to have something uh, along that line. So it was in 96 that I wrote the Canthius Creed and uh, defined a few different specific rituals. And so amongst those things, though, is we, we went with what Historically, and you see, well, the Rastafarians they smoke in a circle. Decide who smoke in a circle. Hippies smoke in a circle, you know. And when I got together with my friends, medical marijuana patients, we were smoking in circles. So we said, well, you know, there's a symbol, the union symbol of the circle, anyway, and the fact that it's so commonly used by people within the cannabis community that this is something that you know would be should be part of the ceremony itself. And you know, and I talked to these attorneys and said, you need to throw in other stuff too. You need to make more rules. And and I just felt like that didn't really seem like it would work that well. For from my perspective. First off, I really didn't want to create I'm, I'm looking at Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm saying, here's this a little hippie guy who comes with the church where you love your neighbor and eschew wealth and do good for for all people and love each other for God's name. And then that became the Catholic church in the Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> you know? And now it's splintered into all these fundamentalist churches, which are, you know, trying to take away women's choice and all these different things that are going on connected to these religions where they're telling people how to live their lives. And I say, you know, I really don't want to form a religion that then transforms into something more obnoxious. I want to have a very, minimal kind of religion. Yeah. And so, could, uh, so that's what we kind of did was put it together with that. And then we, but because I stopped working on it because of the, the attorneys, we kind of put it out in the world and then it started just growing on its own. Yeah. You know, like the church in Amsterdam, church in New Zealand, the church here, a the church there. And, but they, you know, but again, they weren't contacting me at, well, sometimes they were contacting me, but generally speaking, they had come to their own approach. And so Uh, The thing that I noticed is that they all had these same elements that I had already described as cantheism. So it's kind of like, you know, cantheism is to the Catholic Church the way Christianity is to, I mean, see the cantheism is to these other cannabis religions, the way Christianity is to the Catholic Church or any uh, fundamentalist or any other church you would say that's a Christian church.
0: And if I can pause you Like an umbrella
1: belief system in other words.
0: Yeah. If I can read the cantheist creed, uh, if that's okay. Yeah, Please. so call and call response by officiant and congregants. We believe that cannabis sativa L is the useful cane and the true hemp. Therefore, we honor it with high honor. Cannabis hemp is a restorative natural resource for all to grow, share, and use. Humanity has a unique and shared history with this plant. Therefore, we bring cannabis into our lives. Cannabis hemp is endowed with safe and effective healing powers, some of which remain unexplained. Therefore, we offer cannabis to ease suffering and add balance to life. Cannabis hemp is an intuitive sacrament we use to connect with ourselves and our community. Therefore, we share cannabis and thanksgiving in deep respect for her resinous effect. The virtuous cultivation and dissemination of cannabis are honorable professions. Therefore, we act with integrity and honesty to safeguard fellow cantheists. Inhale and pass it on. And if you can pronounce on this last one, (laughs) canamaste. Yeah,
1: Um, canamaste. People, have their own ways of saying it, of course, yeah. but uh, the word cannabis, the accent is on the first syllable, can. So we just added that to Namaste. Uh, and, yes. and part of that is, of course, because of the the Hindu is the the longest lasting religion that used cannabis sacramentally, the sadhus, our uh, most prominent group in there. And so we took the uh, the Namaste uh, from Hinduism. Uh, the, the spirit in me recognizes the spirit or salutes the spirit in you. And so we mm-hmm. just, you know, add canna to it so people can make that connection. So it's my belief right. in cannabis resonates with the, your belief in cannabis or something along that line you can interpret it however you want right,
0: uh, but the other thing we
1: use is the word expression spleef for example we got that from the rastafarians uh, and we talk about it ganja but people can use whatever words they want for it so um yeah yeah now, so if, I know what i would say though if you notice when you go through that the first part of them cannabis hemp is an uh, excuse me uh cannabis is a useful cane the true hemp what that really is is that's the, the cannabis sativa is latin for useful cane and the english name for the plant is the true hemp as opposed to like manila hemp or something else cannabis is a true hemp and so that's just a matter of fact uh then the next one uh is a restorative natural resource for all the grow, share and use well i mean it is a sort of natural resource that's just another fact but then we have the value that we think people should be able to share it and humanity has a unique history with it well That's just a fact, you know, Uh, and we bring cannabis into our lives is what we do. Uh, And then it's endowed with safe and effective healing powers. Uh, You know, that's we're talking about the medical use of cannabis, which is well known. But of course, the federal government has been blocking studies. So what we decided to go is that they're not all explained. And so you can take that as either miraculous if that's your belief system, or you can take it as from a scientific point of view. We just haven't done the studies yet to show it all. Uh, likewise, it, uh, then we get to the other parts where we say it's an intuitive sacrament that we use. Well, that's our value there, uh, and the sharing of it. And then the last part, the virtuous cultivation and dissemination of cannabis are honorable professions. This is because we can't make selling marijuana be part of the religion. We make possessing marijuana and sharing marijuana parts of the religion. The reason for that is because if you make it optional, that you don't have a defense in court for it. Because they'll say, well, just don't do that part of your religion. But so it has to be mandatory. And so what's illegal under federal law is to have marijuana or to sell it. And so or to grow it. These are the three things. And so, uh, you know, we don't not everybody can grow marijuana. So you can't say that people have to grow marijuana. But we do know some people have to grow marijuana. And those people are self-selected. And but the main thing that we're saying is that there's nothing wrong with people Buying and selling and producing marijuana commercially—if they're doing it in an ethical manner, you know—and mm-hmm. so, so this is really where where we broke it down is we took things that are true, factual things, and then we combine it with values that seem to be shared common to the whole cannabis community and uh, particularly to the religions that use cannabis. And I know you have something on the, on your site where it talks about if you don't want to partake
0: in it, and obviously, I think on your page it says twenty-one and over, uh, but also you could sort of sit in the circle. And you don't have to inhale but you can sort of pass it on correct
1: correct because as soon as it is in your hand and that's a federal crime as soon as you hand it to somebody else that's a federal crime and this is what we're trying to say is that freedom of religion means those are not crimes because right. we have to do them and to tell you the truth i mean it's not a matter of, we didn't just construct it because that but if you talk to people who use cannabis first off if you use it you have to have it there's no way around that and second off, people who use cannabis love to share it with each other. You know, right. uh, as we say, one marijuana cigarette, one joint, a cannabis cigarette, you can get one person high, or you can get five people high. Right. It's like the miracle of the lows, but it's with a, a flower. <laughs> um, and,
0: and also, I'm you know I'm interested in uh, you talked about the first and the fourteenth amendment and what parallels there are. I know uh, with the Native American Church trying to get peyote legalized. Are there any parallels sort of? And again, I, I hate to make this legal sort of podcast but since they intersect so
1: much i was wondering if you could just comment a little bit on that um yeah actually we felt that that was going to be a part a critical part of our argument uh are you familiar with the uvc ruling the no. universal vegetal what i, I don't mm-hmm. remember what the church is. i mean it's like universal vegetable church uh, but it's really it's a it's a um uh Basically, all of a sudden, that uh, the South American root that you oh, mix with—I uh, yeah, ayahuasca. Yeah, uh, it's an ayahuasca religion. Okay. And so, what happened in that? What first off, the the uh, Native American church. It says basically you have to be a Native American to be in it. Uh and you know that, that they're not 100 percent behind that. I mean, they've let other people go to their ceremonies, but essentially, that's what that law was very specific to the Native Americans. Uh, the UVC church one, that seemed promising because you've got a psychedelic drug that's used as a spiritual sacrament that's being brought in across international borders and being used in the United States and shared. So it's got a lot of things similar to what cannabis has been all about. Uh, but what they court ruling in that, they said, well, the reason that it was okay for them was because it it's, uh, doesn't have a social use and it's not a very popular drug. So it basically they said it's okay because it's not marijuana. You know because yeah. <laughs> yeah. marijuana one obviously has a lot of popular social uses and, and so right. they kind of like said well every religious spiritual thing the government doesn't have a right to get involved in unless people like it <laughs> and, and use it like marijuana you know and so so in both of those cases even though the the ruling should be beneficial to us fact of the matter is that they have uh they don't really work for yeah. us because you know they, they specifically made them not, not work for us right so I think just, the federal, the courts, when they looked at those cases, they thought, how do we allow this religion and still not allow marijuana religions? Because they had already had the Coptic Church case. They had already had Rastafarian cases. So they, the Supreme Court already decided it was not going to recognize our religious use rights. Uh, and, you yeah. know, the thing is, uh, Matt, is that we haven't had a case yet of somebody who's being busted for marijuana, uh, sacramental use of marijuana, who wasn't selling it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Roger Christie, the THC ministry, they would say, you know, you know, for $45, you get your sacramental eighth. Well, the court that, said that's selling marijuana you know so he ended right. up in prison for five years for that eddie Lepp, the same thing you know you can buy a right to have a church and buy a right to use marijuana well he went to prison for 10 years over that so uh you know uh, I, I think that guy uh, brown um i forgot what his first name is over in uh arkansas he had the same thing he had a church where you buy sacrament at the, as a part of the church and and you know they've been universally turned down yeah
0: um personally speaking just for yourself you know you talk about uh catholicism and um i also grew up catholic and stuff and so the idea of the sort of the eucharist being sort of this psychoactive agent right and they talked a little bit about sort of the history of this when bringing it over um in in south america and stuff and they already had sort of mushrooms and they're like well we already have something that works for us and so personally i was just wondering for you is is marijuana sort of acting as sort of that psychoactive agent that personally uh, you could connect spiritually, and how do you form that with your own sort of day-to-day going about things?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> let me go first with the, the, the spiritual aspect of it, which is that I was raised Catholic. Uh, I, from a very young age, I decided I was going to be a priest. Uh, I was not going to have kids. I was going to become a priest and dedicate my life to Catholicism and, and, and God that way. Uh, as I went through the years, I, you know, uh, we ended up, my family was always late to church. We ended up stuck in the back. Uh, so I, uh, or else we were forced to walk to the front of the church because we had eight, eight siblings, including myself. So, yep. you know, it was hard to get us out the door on Sunday morning, I tell you, but in any case, um, you know, uh, so I felt like something really profound going on there, but I wasn't quite feeling it. So I decided, well, once you're an altar boy, maybe that's when you feel it. So I became an altar boy and I was working on these and I thought, you know, it's something big going on here, but I just can't quite feel it. So then I thought, well, maybe if you come like the, the big altar boy, the top altar boy, you know, that'll make me feel it. Uh, and then I thought, well, you know, maybe, um, uh, maybe I have to become a priest, you know, and that's the only time that you start to feel it. But so I decided, you know, I became a seminarian. I went to seminary and, uh, you know, again, I was saying, I, I, I kind of get it, but I just can't, I don't quite feel it. You know, I mean, I'm this close, I'm this close and I, I got to get there. Uh, and then uh, two things happened. First, I was with the Marinal Seminary. And so we had um, liberation theology. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically, so what I was hoping to do was go to South America, convert people to, Catholicism and help them become more liberated from the social injustice, help them with food, water, shelter, taking care of themselves, equality, things like that, native people's rights. So we'd be focusing on their body and the soul at the same time. Uh, And so in the course of going to the seminary, what they did was we had a class, we had classes on the history of the Catholic church. And so, uh, you know, after, after studying the history of the Catholic church and the inquisition and so forth, I thought, I can't really, convert people to this religion because I don't think the Pope is perfect. Otherwise we wouldn't have had the inquisition, you know, it just yeah. it didn't work for me. And so I was in this horrible spot where I was still looking for this very profound kind of experience. I couldn't even keep going on in the Catholic church. Uh, and of course, if, if you know anything about it, had I gone on my way, I would have been up in South America. I'd probably be dead right now because this is the group that the United States and the Contras were killing off, the, the Marian old priests who were doing the kind of work I wanted to do. And so I'm probably alive today because of losing faith in the Pope. Uh, by the way, I like the current Pope. Yeah, Pope is yeah, the best I like pope, pope. Pope Francis pope. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but basically, like I said, I, I felt like I couldn't convert people to this anymore. And so I had to get out of the church. I had to get out of the seminary. And fortunately for me, the seminary closed down. Mm. And so I, I didn't have to tell my family, you know, I've, I've lost faith. Uh, but then I was kept going to the Catholic church and I got into a, a, a big fight with the priest one day because I was, um, I was on my way from someplace else. Uh, and I, uh, went headed, wanted to go to church and I didn't have time to stop home and change my clothes. So I went to church and I was wearing shorts and a, uh, uh, uh you know, just a not well dressed, put it that way. Yeah. And so afterwards, the priest was—he was so mad at me, man. Where you know I'm kind of to you. The Next thing I know, he's like, you know, really mad at me. He's livid. <laughs> he's yelling at me. You do not come to church dressed like that. You do not da da da. That's a disrespect for God. And so I said, so wait a second. I thought God is everywhere, and God can see me in the shower. So why is God worried about the fact that I'm wearing shorts instead of long pants? He should be glad I'm here in church at all. And the priest says, if you're gonna have that attitude, you can't. Shouldn't even bother to come back to church. So I said, all right, that's all of that you know. Yeah. <laughs> And so then about the same time, uh, my brother, um, who was in college, he he came home and he said, you know, uh, you know, we were talking talk about this and that. And the Beatles, uh, Abbey Road album what, had just what come
0: what out. What year is
1: this? What year is this?
0: 69.
1: 69? Or, yeah, okay. 69. Uh-huh. And so the Beatles, uh, Abbey Road album had just come out. And so uh, my brother's, uh, you know, we we're like talking about this and that. And my brother suddenly says, well, so do you think you'll ever smoke marijuana? And I'm like, mm, I, I don't know. I mean, that's probably sooner or later. I haven't really thought about that much. And he says, well, if you have some now, we just smoke it. And I said, well, I'm not sure. And he said, well, I've got some. Do you want to try it? I was like, well, hell yeah. so we're like smoking away and it's like the first joint i'm thinking eh, nothing nothing you know second joint eh, nothing nothing why i don't get it at all why do people even smoke this stuff risk going to prison for this it's like crazy mm-hmm. uh and then the third joke came on the third joint came up as uh that um yeah, i want you she's so heavy was on the turntable and it's like you know i'm like listening to the song and i'm thinking wow that's a great song and i'm suddenly thinking how long has this song been on? <laughs> it seems like this song's been on all day. So I said to my brother, is this a super, super long song? Is that my imagination? He says, well, I think you might be feeling the herb. And then my mom walks in and says, you know, time for some lunch. I'm like, oh my God, my mom, you know, what am I gonna do? And it's like, oh, I I could function. I said, okay. <laughs> and then we're like walking around and I, and I felt like I was, my consciousness was altered in a way where the real was still real, but yet I was feeling it on its other plane. I was able to depersonalize. It was like looking at myself going through my own life and and I could see you know, some of what I liked and didn't like in some cases about what I was doing. And I thought, well, this is much more profound than anything I've gotten in all these years in church. You know, I'm yeah. not looking to try to get to the front of the church, looking to, to get that moment of contact. I felt that when I smoked cannabis, I was more connected to nature. I was more connected to the spiritual than I have been in all those reciting those prayers over and over and over again for decades. And so that really, um, that's what really made me feel like, you know, this is, there's, there's much more to this. It's not just what, you know, what we heard about in the newspapers about people getting high and shooting people up or whatever they're doing back in the, you know, claiming they were doing the newspapers back in those days, scaring everybody. I I felt like this is, this is something that's intimate. It's something that's, um, uh, intuitive. Uh, and it's something that I wanted a part of my life. In fact, I think, uh, Paul McCartney had a song, got to get you into my life, uh, mm-hmm. which is about when he first smoked marijuana. Well, that's kind of the way I felt about it too. The first time I smoked, I said, this is going to be part of my life.
0: Yeah. And now I think almost, well, 50 years plus later, and you're, how, how would you describe your marijuana relationship as long as your relationship with God and do they continue to grow, like uh, together, or do you see them as sort of separate entities? And and how do you form that sort of to make, sh- you know, for us, I think we form it. And pantheism on your side here it sort of talks about a little bit about how you form, you know, uh, the function of it in, with circles and, and 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 things like that. But again, for you personally, do you feel like your relationship with God has grown, or do you feel like it, you know, has sort of gone different ways? Or what's your opinion
1: on that? well uh you know i think i've lost some of the duality that's involved with thinking in terms of god uh mm-hmm. because i feel like there's a, so much of an interconnection I, I don't feel like there's a god over here and a me over here i feel like we're yeah. both part of the same thing so i've got kind of a, a more of a, kind of a hinduistic belief about the way that the universe is all connected together um it, it, so so my my thinking about god and you know, i've studied world religions and so forth i, I i've done a lot of research on it, and so i uh i guess you can't really research god because of, You know, something. (laughs) It's just there, but uh, or not. But uh, but in any case, uh, I I feel like uh, these two things have gone very much together for me uh, in terms of my my sense of morality and uh, humanity and connection with nature and this plant and the and the spiritual world. The interconnection of all these things feels very profound. The more I've learned about things like when I learned about how the endocannabinoid system, uh, you know, works that's another interesting thing is that i you know i was writing my book hemp for health and i said you know cannabis works across all your body systems it's like it's its own system and yet it was years later that somebody came up with the endocannabinoid system after I had said that there seems like there's something like that, that, and then scientists found that it was true. But I came up with it intuitively, I just felt that it was happening like that, you know. And so, so I think that this connection uh, is, is very uh, profound in that regard. And it's, makes me, um, me very much want to uh, continue to reach out to other people. And I, you know, I, I have both sides, of it. I like the secular fun part of it and I like the spiritual uh, side of it and so forth. Uh, The thing that really struck me though, was that I had thought that there would be people. And one of my concerns in doing this was that there are people who are sincere believers, but there's also opportunists. And so I thought, well, you know, what I'm going to end up with these people who don't really have a sacramental spiritual value relationship with cannabis, They're just getting in legal trouble. So now they want me to come in and explain the spiritual side of it, but they may not really feel that, you know what I mean? Right. However, in all those years, uh, I only had two or three cases come up where I was asked to testify that involves uh, religious use. And in both cases, people were selling the marijuana. So, you know, the defense was not allowed in court. Uh, So it really struck me is that after cannabis became legal in California, and you didn't have to have any reason whatever to use it. That's when people started approaching us about they wanted to come. They've read about our ceremonies. They wanted to get, have a ceremony. They wanted to get involved with it. And so, in fact, you know, I thought that making a religion would help to lead to legalization. But it's turned out that in reality, what's happened is that because of legalization, people have woken up to the religious and spiritual value of cannabis in ways that I think was absent before, when it was just people being afraid or people had to use it for medicine and that was what they're using it for, or people were using it because it was a party and they wanted to you know, get in there and you know, or people were selling it just to make some money or on the side or something like that. That in fact in the matter, just as we had thought that there was a whole spiritual side of it, that legalization has actually created a doorway for people to discover this and to come to pantheism, and again, you know, a, a person can be like Roger Christie over in the TAC ministry. He's profoundly Christian, uh, and and he believes in the, the basic tenets of cantheism in his TAC ministry. At the same time, you've got Swami Shaitanya, who's very Hindu, and he very much follows it too. And then we've had people who are very Rasta, and they, you know, they they share it too. And so. Uh, one of the things that becomes a concern to me is that we have to keep this um, interdisciplinary, non sectarian, non dogmatic approach. And it's, it's kind of hard to do because, like, we get a lot of uh, a relatively high percentage of Hindus who use cannabis, for example. Uh, the other thing that really struck me, though, most profoundly, and, and this, I, it surprised me, Matt, to tell you the truth, was that when we got involved with this and had our first services, and we said to people, So, what is your religious belief system? most of them were agnostic or atheist, but they Mm. said they still felt like they got a spiritual value out of cannabis. And so uh, even if they didn't believe in a spirit, they felt like there was a spiritual value. And so that to me is like really profound. And if you want to go to that um, book that we were talking about earlier, uh, Michael Pollan's book, uh, you may remember there was a part where they did a study about uh, cannabis, I mean, about mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I, I don't, my Forgive me for these percentages because I don't think they're right, but it's something like um, 60% of the people who took it said that they felt a psychedelic experience, but 80% said that they had a profound spiritual enlightenment that had changed them for life. And so that's like 20% who did not even think they felt it, but still felt like it had changed their lives. And so uh-huh. in a way, I feel like that's the way of can- with cannabis, people don't even know they're having a spiritual relationship with it. Once they open their eyes to it, they think, well, yeah, I believe it's an important plant. I believe it's part of my life. I believe there's powers that we don't know about this plant. I believe that people can use it ethically. You know, it doesn't really matter whether you believe in God or not. Right. What matters yeah. is for our purposes is that we can share this moment together and make each other's lives more rich.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important piece. I'm glad you brought it up because I wasn't implying there has to be a theistic sort of um, doctrination on top of it. I'm glad you brought in the atheist because for me, it's really about, you know, sacralization and how you can make this world, your life sacred. It doesn't have to mean you have to believe in a God. Um, Atheists and agnostics easily could have that same connection to their sacredness. So, uh,
1: where I think I think you see that with yoga too, that some people use their meditation and yoga to come very deep uh, spiritual experiences, transcendental. Meanwhile, other people do it because it takes their mind off of their problems in life and makes them feel less stressed.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and to use a horrible metaphor here, right. There's many roads to Rome and (laughs) And not to say this is wrong, but you, you get the gist. So hopefully, the final question I have for you is, um, with now, I mean, you said, you know, people are coming to you, do you, are, are you performing sort of, is there a movement in itself of pantheism, or is it very small, is it very separate, like you said, or
1: and what do you think the future of cantheism is? Well, um, I think that uh, the things that we're going to, the enduring parts of cannabis, I think, are the idea of people possessing and sharing cannabis, uh, recognizing and intentionally using spiritually and uh, using the word kanamase to help identify their belief system. Uh, And so I I think that this is something that whether or not the other aspects of it develop or whether it becomes a bunch of individual churches and and doesn't... um, you know, reach the, the level of being a, a church of itself. I mean, it's a religion, but it's not necessarily a church. And this is one of the questions that we're really going through is, what do we do? Should we be filing with the state? Should we be making it a church? Or what we have now is just people believe in it. And so it's it's in a, it's in a church in people's hearts, not a church in a government document, you know? Right. Um, and, and so uh, I, I, I think that what we're going to see is it's going to be a combination of different things. Uh, if you may remember during the... Uh, the assault on the federal uh, democracy uh, on January the 6th in Washington, D.C., that there were people there who were blowing marijuana smoke. Uh, There was a church, a marijuana church there blowing out there and going like, you know, that just goes to show you how different your p- points of view can be because I'm very much for America democracy <laughs> and I would yes. never attack on capital or anything like that. But yes. yet these guys are blessing people for doing it. So I know that there's no way that you can say, well, this is the way it's going to be. And, and when you look at the Catholic church you, or the Christian church and you see all the different uh, aspects of, or even the Muslim religion, you know, there's yeah. some that are very open. There's some that are very restrictive and fundamentalist. And so, right. so we see this in all these different things. So I don't think there's any way you can control that aspect of it going on. There's going to be nutty churches and they're going to be Mm -hmm. serious churches and so forth Uh, but i I do what i do think is that uh, what i'm hoping to accomplish with this is to have people recognize this and find a common way of getting together to share it and that's why it's like taking the circle to pass it around is because people already do that so i you know we pick things in order to make it go forward like that one of the other things that we were told uh, by an attorney when we were um working on, well, you know, we we talk to attorneys all the time about what we're doing and so forth. Uh, But one of the things they're saying is that we should have, like, special robes that we wear, for example, theocratic robes, and we should have uh, different rules and we should have different judgments about people like, you know, what is a sinful use of cannabis or something like that. And so, you know, so we're saying, well, uh, we had a little discussion about that well, what about it? Is there a sinful use of cannabis? And a lot of these people in the group said, well, no, not really, you know, because people use cannabis for their own purposes. There's nothing wrong with that. So I suggested this, suppose that you are, uh, your purpose of having cannabis is that you're a law enforcement officer. You're going to use this cannabis to get somebody else to break the law so that you can arrest them and send them to prison and take away their freedom and the right to use marijuana religiously. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad use of marijuana. And they all agree that was pretty bad use of marijuana. So I say, so we do agree that there are certain values of, of, you know, good and bad uses of it, but we don't want to go to the point of trying to make a bunch of rules for people. And so, you know, this is kind of what we, we want to do is to have this be a a mystical enough religion that people find it intuitively on, their own and can reach it without any help, but that when they want a little extra guidance and a little extra boost and uh, something that will connect them further into it and help them understand, you know how how broad and deep the religious history is in this plant, that we are there as a um, you know as, a, as one of those roads through them, as you said, a pathway uh-huh. that people can follow, and without being oh too um, well, one of our things of our policies that we, you know, that we try to uh, proselytize, meaning tell other people about our beliefs, but to not gonna be obnoxious about it, you know? Yeah, I love uh, that. And so I we're always that. at that point too, that we we really want to respect other people's beliefs at the same time. Uh, and so to the extent that they don't agree with ours, uh, like I say, one, one of the problems we're having right now has to do with the fact that these um, the uh, deceitful narratives that are being Promulgated throughout society, you know. It used to be they'd said lies about marijuana. Now we have whole news networks dedicated to spreading fake news, you know. And so, uh, so you know, we're very much into the truth, but not everybody really sees the truth anymore. Yeah, you know, not that they always did, but I think that the the internet has actually made it easier to connect with people on the one hand, but also more difficult because so many people are putting out bad information, Uh, and that's not just not just about marijuana or anything like that yeah. you know it's, it's all over the place and i know and i don't yeah, know the answer to that i wish i could figure that one out you know I mean, yeah and i know i asked mm-hmm. you before if you were affiliated
0: or familiar with the the church in new england of, of cantheism, but their first commandment is i will share my faith but not be obnoxious about it <laughs> and i, I just, yeah we call I, that I the canthias code <laughs> <laughs> yeah let me just read the top three because i think they're fascinating so the most important things in life aren't things it's a good conversation oh, and then yeah, the third huh? one which I love. Don't light no fire you can't see, and I and I would love to have a conversation just about that particular line. <laughs> Don't light no fire you can't see. It's like well, okay, let's talk about that. That's really good. Yeah, so, I like to know what that means exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but
1: um, yeah, no, see, and and so what you know, like I said, that one of the things that surprised me or or really made me happy was that you know that even when the you know we put together the basic idea of, of why we've we validated as a religion, we explained it, we created the historical background, we explained the, the universality of some of these traditions uh, and the intuitive aspect of it. And then after we, meaning myself, after I was forced to back off of it because of these practical considerations of what happens in a court of law, other people saw the, the intrinsic uh value and moved on with their own and like i don't disagree with what he was saying you know i I don't quite understand it (laughs) yeah (laughs) but that's a lot of what we do you know in fact let me just take you quickly through what our ceremony comprises is that we start we congregate we create an intention to make sure that people there with our intention of sharing it as a sacrament we're not just here because it's you know i i had nothing else to do today and i wanted to yeah. get high uh, yeah. uh, you know yeah. people come and and we mix the cannabis from everybody so it's no one's selling it but we all get to share and the people who don't have any they they get just as much as everybody else you know and right. we just spread it around then we consume it and we we talk about things that are important more like the people that that have shaped us to so the beings that we are just now consuming this cannabis. Then we talk about what's going on internally. The endocannabinoid system become activated. Then we go into a meditation where, uh, it's a body scan meditation, where we go through your whole body and people, uh, then, uh, go as deeply into themselves as they can using right. cannabis as a, uh, tool to do so. Yeah. And then we come out of that. And we reconnect with each other. We talk about the joys and that the uh, what we got. Or somebody might want to make music, or someone may want to dance, or whatever. Uh, and then at the, we do another closing circle where we smoke again. And then after that, we stay together and we celebrate our 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 uh, beings together and have a, a feast. So you know, right. we, we start with this idea of coming together. Then we go deep inside. Then we come back together and uh, and celebrate. And and another the thing I throw out is that we we have a, a we kind of do an OM chant at the end, but as I mentioned, we're not Hindu as such. Right. Uh, so what we see is it's a resonation, the, the resonant sound, of uh, you know, M or N. You mm-hmm. can say MA, you can say OM, you can say uh, NA, you can just say O. Oh, doesn't really matter, but you vibrate and this is sort of resonating. And so we also look at the active compounds of the cannabis plant are in what? The resin. And so even though it's a different spelling, that's like this connection, a uh, uh, sound connection between those two things. So we feel like, you know, the plant is resin. Now we're resonation. And yeah. so uh, yeah, that, that, and at the end of that, then we go back to our normal world.
0: That's awesome. That's wonderful.
1: Well, I, I was just thinking, you know, while
0: talking to you, I mean, if people are wanting to spread this in their own little way, you know, next time if you're inhaling, you say you touch the, your heart with the left hand and pass with left the right, say, that, to say, Namaste. And we also,
1: because Pre-COVID, we were always concerned. We don't want to get people colds or flus yeah. or anything. So we do it like this. We use a chiller yeah. style of smoking. Uh-huh. And then, so like you say, you, uh, you take take it from the right, say, hand on your heart. Okay. And like I say, if you don't want to pass it, if you don't want to inhale it, you just simply say Kanamase and pass it to the next person. Yeah. Uh, and again, because like I said, the, we're defending people's right to possess uh, and to uh, share this plant. Yeah. People make their own choice of whether they want to inhale it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I guess my last question, since you brought that up, is, is there any sort of regulations or
1: rules to the Bogarts in the group that just don't pass it on? <laughs> yeah. Take one of the joints out of the middle pile because we have a big spleaf. The <laughs> big spleaf uh, has to make a whole circle. And yeah. that's, a, that, so th- that's one of the things we're actually running into to tell you the truth, Matt, is that when we are first doing it, we had 15, 20 people, you know, you get it going around. Yeah. Take, you know, five minutes or whatever, around. Then we got to this thing where we had a hundred people, and they were like organized in rows and this. So we like that joint. I don't know if it ever made it all the way back around, you know. <laughs> so so then we do things where we like break into this, where there's one joint yeah. that goes two sacramental joints. They can go around groups in enough right. time to converge, but uh, timing that is is actually kind of a trick. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> but uh, well, you know, people smoke throughout. The other thing is because you know, some people um, they might take an edible beforehand. They might not smoke anything. Uh, another yeah. person may be smoking a lot of a hash and, and so yeah. they want to don't want to just a spleef they want to smoke some hash too. People sit there with their own joints smoking it while it goes around. The sacramental oh. one is the shared one, but people yeah. smoke as much or eat as much as they want. And a lot of times to tell you the truth, uh, you know, people will uh, come a little more than they thought and then when we try to have the conversation they're a little more quiet than they had intended to be. Uh, so so you know we do encourage people. But you know if somebody just wants to sit there and listen instead of engaging in the conversation or listening, like we'll have someone who, who teaches a kind of like a class about spiritual use of cannabis their own practice or some historical group and something like that. We have a, a university professor on a world religions who gives us uh, presentations at times and stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people make their own uh, decision about that. Right.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing that story. I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, I just want to thank you and, be, and demonstrate my gratitude for the work that you've done to get this legalized. And,
1: uh, again, thank you so much. Well, it's always been rewarding. Thank you. Can kind of stay, Matt. Awesome. Come stay.